Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Well, hey there! How's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what games we've been playing recently. I am also very happy to announce we have two new ambassador members to the cast. We have Board Game Hot Takes and All Games New and Old. And on this episode are... The Cardboard Kid... Dice and Dragons, Board Game Hot Takes, All Games New and Old, The Tabletop Bellhop, The Meeple Dungeon, Meeple and the Moose, Mozart Games, The Bridge City Board Gamers Community, and Cardboard Conjecture. And as always, please take the time to check the links out in the show notes of the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast, and enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm the Cardboard Kid. I've had a very busy summer with appointments and so on, but we played a ton of games recently with our friend Vaughn visiting. I reviewed Western Legends on July 3rd, 2020, so I'll just focus on my updated thoughts. This was our first game with four players, and because it was also a teaching game, It was long. We added nearly all the modules from the expansions, giving us so much to do. I'm very thankful for the frost travel option added by Antiup's train. It seems hard to win if you don't go to Buzzard Gulch first. All of us were able to get there before Dad and clear a lot of it. Even so, this epic sandbox game was fun and we all had a good time. I reviewed Wingspan on February 26, 2021, and my video for its Oceania expansion will be going up in a few weeks. I really like the game with this expansion and would never play without it. The luck has been toned down, and there are a few more ways to score. You can also get your engine up and running quicker. I also can't talk about Wingspan without talking about the gorgeous art. I can't give the artist enough praise. Mario Puzzles is from the same designer, Elizabeth Hargrave, but this one fell flat for me. Us, actually. The icons are pretty much the only good thing. The art is incredibly distracting and overwhelming, especially for people like me with sensory disorders. The board is very crowded. The lines aren't easy to see. Luck plays a huge role, and you just don't have enough to do, let alone interesting things to do. Whilst playing, I said to Dad that I played prototypes that felt more finished than this, and I didn't explain what it was about. You're migrating butterflies, starting in Mexico, flying around, trying to make more, and hoping to make it back to Mexico with the most points. That same night, we finally played Azul. We started with the original, and wow. This abstract puzzle game has you drafting same pattern tiles from the center to place on the left side of your board. You can only place them in one of the staircase rows where a matching color isn't already on the right side. You also only move tiles to the right when a row is filled, meaning it'll take cleverness and luck not to mention a turn or two before you can do so. Scoring is combo-based, and the game is a multiplayer solitaire, so someone could be doing better or worse than you realize. Even so, we thought this was amazing. 
I reviewed Karuba on December 18th, 2020, and it sure felt great to get this one out on the table again. While it also is a multiplayer solitaire, you will have an idea as to what, how others are doing based on when they grab the central scoring tiles. It's a race against your opponents and an ever-shrinking pile of tiles. It's about 20 minutes, including setup and takedown, easy to teach, learn, and play, and absolutely fantastic. I reviewed Crash Octopus on March 11th, 2022. Despite only pulling this lighthearted game down occasionally, we enjoy it when we do. It's also easy to teach, learn, and play, works well with different ages and experience levels, looks and feels amazing, and only takes about 25 minutes. It's the perfect embodiment of great time filler game. I reviewed Rescue Polar Bears Data and Temperature on August 12th, 2019. We've only won this extremely difficult call once, and we certainly weren't going to do it with Vaughn once we saw our first few draws and rolls. So many polar bears drown. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Stop mating. A lot of cooperators have an ascending arc of hopelessness. Arkham Horror the Card Game does this well. Rescue Polar Bears, like Flashpoint, another family favorite, hits you in waves. Oh god, they keep dying. No, wait, I, th I, th I think we're going to be okay. Why did I roll a six? Okay, more helicopter tokens. Yes, please. Come on, low number. Oh. Well, we lost. Quirky Circuits, a game I reviewed November 2nd, 2020, is very challenging depending on which robot and map you use and the people you play with. I talk about this in the review, but I love how the game introduces elements and mechanisms as you go. Anyhow, me and dad think a lot alike. Mom can't tell lefts and rights. Vaughn can't even hold his cards the right way, let alone telling lefts and rights. We didn't do so well. <laughs> I love this game, but it can be really frustrating at times. Flipping things around, we also played a much simpler co-op, Zombie Kids Evolution, which I reviewed December 11th, 2020. Well, we say simpler, but that's entirely due to its mechanisms and speed. This is totally a game you can play with young gamers, but when you roll as poorly as Vaughn and Dad do, prepare to be locked out of rooms and be overwhelmed quickly. We finally finished the campaign and really enjoyed our time with this. I'd quite like to try Zombie Teens Evolution soon. I finally played Ponzi Scheme, a game Dad bought as a gift for Mom a few years ago. Despite loving Stockpile and the estates, I wasn't particularly interested in playing this one until he finally sat down with it in Vaughn. When, wow, was I wrong to put this one off. The impending doom of seeing when you need to pay back ever-increasing loans and the fading sense of hope when you see your clever move get ignored or scoffed at by an opponent. This game is evil, yet incredibly clever. That's about all for now. If you want to see photos and updates of what I'm playing, follow me on Twitter at cardboard underscore kit. For video reviews, check out my YouTube channel, The Cardboard Kit. Please stay safe. Happy gaming! What up gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dice and Dragons, and you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing? We've been playing some Marvel Champions. Yes, we've had a project going on here. We've been trying to catch up on all the content that we've missed, and over the past couple weeks, or week, I'm not really sure at this point, it's been a lot of Marvel Champions. We've been playing the Ironheart and Nova Hero Packs. Now, our review for Ironheart has already been released, and Nova will be coming out the day after this is released on uh, the Cardboard Conjecture podcast feed. So, Julie, what did you think of Ironheart? 
Well, I thought she was a lot of fun to play. I, I wasn't sure at first because uh, she plays a little bit differently, but uh, she is a very well-rounded uh, character that's just a whole lot of fun to play. I really enjoyed playing her as well. I wasn't sure who I was going to like between Nova and Ironheart. And while I did like a lot of Nova's cards, I do think you're right about Ironheart being just a more well-rounded character. She feels like an easier version of Iron Man uh, with a constant progression to her upgraded form, which I really liked. And I do like the fact that she does get equipment like Iron Man that lets her do some things like thwart and attack, which I found incredibly useful and gave her a lot of abilities to do a ton of damage at the end. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, she she does rely on some cards to come up to allow her to, to really reach her full potential. Uh, but but she uh, she was a lot of uh, a lot of fun to play. And I think of, of all of the expansions uh, that we played, uh, you know, I guess a spoiler would be to say she was definitely the most uh, the most fun I, I had with them. Well, definitely probably the the best character pack that we've played so far in Wave 5. And we played all of them. Well, you haven't got a chance to play Vision yet. I played Vision, and I'll be talking about that in, uh, in a little bit in the, in the future. But I think he was pretty good as well. But Ironheart definitely still is a cut above. She is one of the better heroes that they put out uh, in uh, recent memory. So let's talk a little bit about Nova. Yeah, Nova... Nova wasn't as much fun. I very card dependent, and uh, it just wasn't working for me. I just couldn't get it going. Well, one of the the issues I think with Nova is the fact that his pre-constructed deck doesn't necessarily fit the character. He's running a Justice deck, and I almost feel like they threw Justice at him just so that uh, he would have you'd have a Justice deck to get some more cards because he's focused a lot on thwart, but some of his best cards come up and trigger when you're defeating enemies and things like that, such as that Nova Force card, which I really liked, but in the scenario that we were playing, it didn't end up being very useful. Yeah, I, I felt really inefficient in the game that I played with Nova. I was just very frustrated. Um, I mean, I can see I can see the potential, it just it wasn't working for me. No, I think he's got a very strong hero It's himself. But the deck needs a lot of work. And if you're like us and often end up just playing the pre-constructed decks because you play a lot of games and you're constantly moving on to other things, then I'm not so sure I would recommend him as a must-have pickup. That being said, if you do like deck instruction and Marvel Champions is a game that's a table for you on a regular basis, I do think you can't go wrong with picking up Nova. Yeah, well, I, I would definitely, of the two, I would definitely recommend Ironheart. I think that's one that you... Uh, definitely want to have in your deck. She's very strong against the strong uh, villains that they've put out as well. Uh, I don't know how you do it with some of the previous uh, heroes. Well, some of the previous heroes, when you, you know, construct the deck, put in some of the newer cards, they're going to get a lot better. But that's just, you know, the the power creep of the game and part of the, the whole living card game model. But as you said, disappointing in terms of what we got out of the box for Nova. So if you'd like to hear our thoughts on both of those heroes, we have them in much more detail on our reviews that are out or will be coming out. And on that note, we're going to remind you to keep playing games.
Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes podcast, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. Today I'm going to talk about a game that I just had a chance to play for the first time this week, and that game is Francis Drake. Francis Drake was published in 2013. The designer was Peter Howes, and it's currently being published by Eagle Griffin Games. Now, if you weren't aware, and I wasn't before being introduced to this game, Francis Drake was a real person. He was a 16th century privateer. And uh, from what I understand, a privateer is a saint, essentially a state-sanctioned pirate. So he would go out and attack Spanish ships and Spanish towns and take all the booty he could. And the English government would reward him for it. And he eventually even got knighted by the Queen of England. So uh, Francis Drake was very famous doing this. He caused a lot of damage to the uh, Spanish government, helped in the uh, war between the UK and, and Spain. And a lot of other people wanted to be like him. So in this game, you're going to be playing a privateer who is trying to kind of emulate Francis Drake's exploits and become as renowned as he has. The way this works is that there's a big map in the center of the board. And the goal is to go out there and, and uh, it's a map of, of the Spanish coastline. And the goal is to go out there and either take out uh, Spanish um, uh Spanish ships or Spanish towns or, or Spanish forts. Um, the way you're going to do that, the first half of the game is this planning phase, provisioning phase, they call it, uh, where you're going to go out and basically put tokens down this strip of action um, actions blocks. There's about 18 different actions you can take. Uh, once you put a token on one of those spaces and you can take any of them down the line, you can never go back and take a previous space. So if you push too far forward, you may be missing out on some actions earlier on. And each of these action spaces have a, a couple different spots you can go in that tend to be stronger the first person that goes there. So for example, I could go to the first spot out of these 18 and it might give me three crew members if I'm the first one there. But the second person to go there would only get two crew members and the next person would only get one. So you're benefited to going to some of these spots before other people. But at the same time, there are some spots further down the line that only one person or only two people can even go to. So you also don't want to wait too far behind and get to some of these other spots. Now these spots are going to help you build up some of the resources you need to uh, to you know go out and, and get into these combats and do these exploits. They're going to give you crew members, they're going to give you guns, they're going to give you some trade goods. So you could also potentially go out and trade for some things uh, that will get you some in-game points. Uh, you can upgrade your ship, you can um, uh, work with some personalities that will give you extra abilities. So as uh, each player takes a turn, the next person will go and they'll keep going until everybody's gotten past all of these lines. And whoever is the first one to finish is going to be the first one that's going to go out and, and ship to sea. Once everybody's done this, we're going to move into the, into the sailing phase. Um, what this consists of is essentially kind of a blind bidding on which actions you want to take out on this map. And the map is going to, like I said, have some forts and some towns you can conquer. There would be some galleons that you can go out and conquer. And there's a couple trading spaces. Um, you know, everybody starts with four uh, tokens, four bidding tokens. They have numbers one through four on them. And they're going to be face down. They're going to be hidden to the other players. So players are going uh, are gonna to take turns putting one of these tokens out next to each of these spaces. So you know if you're going to be competing for someone else there, but you don't know what number you're competing for. Once everybody's finished placing them, you're gonna flip all those tokens over and whoever has the lowest number at a given space is gonna to get to go first. They're gonna take the same option of trying to attack that fortress or 
uh, taking the first trade good off a pile, for example. So it puts you at a little bit of a risk in that if there are multiple people, let's say there's only two spaces on uh, that can attack a galleon and three people put their discs there, if you're not one of the top two highest spaces, you're not even going to be able to use that action. Also, if you're the first person to go there, you're often going to get a little extra bonus uh, gold or silver or, or ruby, which are going to be worth some endgame points. So you're motivated to be the first to attack these places. Um, once everybody's revealed all the tokens, you'll go in turn order and with your lowest token first and basically resolve the location that you're at. So for example, uh, if I went to a fortress and I had that my number one there and another person had their number three there, I would go and activate my number one. I would uh, attack the fortress, which consists of me having to give up a certain number of crew and guns potentially, uh, depending on what's indicated on that space. And then um, I would move to the next person's number one token and that person might have it at a trading space or something like that. Um, once everybody's resolved all of these tokens, you're gonna basically um, add up anyone who's got a set of at least one fortress, one galleon and one town that they've defeated that turn and they're gonna get the most points. If people only have one or two of those, they're gonna get a few less points at the end of the round. And then you're gonna clear everything off and start all over again. And you're gonna do this over three rounds. That means that any resources people have left over, like their guns and crew, they, they discard those. Anything you've done out on the board, those all get replaced and refreshed. And you start over and you basically do the whole thing over again. Um, so a couple interesting things about this game. I really enjoy that provisioning phase where you're kind of going out and placing up the track to see what resources you can get. It's it's a tough choice to say I want the best one in this early spot because I'm potentially giving up a really good spot further up the route that somebody else could take. So that was fun every time. Now the blind building bidding is also really interesting because it's it can be very tight. You, you may have only collected enough resources to potentially do two spaces, um, but you've got four bidding tokens to put out there. So you can potentially go out there and bid a little bit lower in a space with the hope you get. And if you don't, that's okay, you can go to another space. But sometimes it can be really tight. You wanna use all four of those spaces, but if you don't get quite right in the order, you're not gonna get the benefit or you may not even get a chance to do it. So that was always a fun choice. Beyond that, some of the galleons and the fortresses have additional um, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, additional goals you have to hit, like additional guns you have to have or crew members you have to have in order to succeed there. But you won't know that until all those things get flipped over at the beginning of the sailing phase. It led to a whole bunch of fun uh, things that happened, a bunch of fun decisions. This was a really exciting game, a really beautiful production by Eagle Griffin. Um, uh, you know, nice kind of period worthy artwork, this beautiful map, uh, big plastic ships. Uh, I really enjoyed this game. This was a surprise for me, a game that was not on my radar at all, uh, but, but it was a lot of fun. I think you have to play it with a minimum of three players. We played it with five, played pretty briskly about a 90 minute play with five people uh, and everybody had a good time with it. So I definitely recommend checking it out. That was Francis Drake. Until next time, take care, everybody. This is David from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel. Uh, life's been extremely crazy lately, but somehow my wife and I managed to get in a few plays of Three Sisters for our upcoming review we're doing. So if you don't know, this is a roll and write game designed by Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. And in the game, you're basically trying to create the perfect garden. And you're doing that by growing corn, beans, pumpkins, flowers, and fruits. 
And, you know, previously I hadn't really been too into roll and write games. At least for a long time I wasn't. I played, you know, a few of them and they all just felt, I don't know, like not very strong in their theme, to say the least. And they just never really grabbed me. At some point I tried Cartographers and that one was pretty fun. I did like that one, but I, I was starting to think maybe it was just going to be this one single game that that uh, that I liked and, uh, and maybe I wouldn't find another one that I did. But you know, this game really has a lot going on. It's, it's, I'd say it's quite a bit heavier than most other roll and rates I've played, even though it's not extremely heavy on its own. But you do a lot of things and you're working towards, well, having the most points, of course, but you're building up to these combos. Like you can have some turns at the beginning where maybe you're just planning a couple things or you're watering or what have you. But as time goes on, you know, doing one task in your garden will then allow you to do something else and then something else. And you can have this incredibly combo-rific turn where just everything falls into place. The other thing I really am liking about this one is that there are a lot of ways you can take your strategy. There is this section of the board called the shed, and there's a lot of different shed actions. And what I like about that area of the board is it can help you kind of define your strategy for the game as you go forward. So some of the actions might give you bonuses based on how much fruit you grow or the flowers you grow or, or any number of other things. So they might help you plant more seeds, for instance. And so by picking your shed actions over there when you get the opportunity to, you can then really start to fine-tune and, and hone in on what you want to do in the game. And then, of course, the uh, the trick is being efficient enough to get yourself a win uh, in that case. And I almost never win games, and this is no exception. Uh, my wife beat me, not by a lot, but she still uh, beat me uh, like she almost always does. But that being said, I still really liked it. I kind of have to like games when I lose because it does always happen. But it was very enjoyable to build up this garden and to see how the various different things you could grow helped each other out, which is very thematic for the idea behind Three Sisters where, you know, it was um, a Native American uh, way of growing things where they would have the corn and then they'd grow the beans near it. And so the beans would use the corn as a, like a stock to grow up. And then they'd have a pumpkins or squash on the ground, which would create good ground cover, which would help keep, you know, pests away and that sort of thing. And, you know, while the game doesn't get too deeply into that, it does have a lot of things that, that will kind of help you out. Like if you have... Uh, two of your pumpkins grow next to each other, you'll automatically get one of the flowers that is between them to grow. So there's a lot of little things like that that make you kind of pay more attention to growing things together so that you can make other things flourish in your garden as well. And I really like that. And I feel like I have not figured out the perfect key to maximize my potential garden here. I feel like I'm probably still scoring uh, pretty low compared to people that have played it a while. But in the plays that I've had, I've tried a different strategy every single time. And every time I've enjoyed it, and every single one seemed viable if I can just figure out the way to do it the most efficiently, which I am not to yet. So I think this game has immense replayability. It feels very thematic, which a lot of like the earlier roll and write games didn't really. 
And I really love that because I am, uh, I'm really into theme. Theme does a lot for me. And even though gardening is not a theme that usually I would think I would gravitate towards, this one has really, really caught me. And now it wants me to try, or now, excuse me, now I want to try some of the other Roll and Rights by the same design team. They did Fleet the Dice game, I believe. And I did get the kicks or I ordered the Kickstarter for... Um, Motor City. So I'm excited when that shows up and I definitely want to try Fleet the Dice game. If you haven't tried out Three Sisters or any of the others, uh, definitely give it a shot, especially if you've been unsure about Roland Rights before. You could be like me and this could really change your mind. You know, it has a good amount of depth without being you know crazy complicated and it has enough theme to really draw you in and it just feels so good to get those combos off as you play and, you know, hopefully hopefully see that those cobbles will get you some good points and get you a win later in the game. But even if not, you can start thinking about what you'll do next time to make your original strategy better. So that's all I've been playing for this week because we had to get that uh, review out soon. So I'm hoping I can play more in the coming week, but we shall see because life keeps getting in the way. If you'd like to check out my channel and that review that I have coming up, you can go to the All Games New and Old YouTube channel. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at All Games New N Old. And I do the occasional TikTok video, so that is All Games New and Old. So I hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. I've got a lot of games to talk about this week, so let's get right to it. So this past weekend, my co-host Sean was down here in Windsor and we played a lot of games together. Plus, I also got in some games with the extended family. Now, most of these were shorter games, but we did get in a couple heavier ones as well. Now I'm going to list these in the number of plays, starting with Point Salad, which I got to play a big six times this past weekend. Now this is a game I had heard a lot about that I picked up on our last vacation at a cool little bookstore in Campbellford, Ontario. Wow, does this game live up to the hype. It really is fantastic. It's a brilliant design where you have cards that have one of six ingredients on one side and a way to score ingredients on the other. You put out a market and on your turn, you either take one point card or two ingredients. Do that until the deck's empty, then everyone scares their points. That's pretty much all there is to it, and it works so well. I am so happy we picked up a copy of Point Salad, and I expect to keep playing this one for a long time. Next up was Chiseled with five plays. This was one of many games that Grand Gamers Guild sent us to check out from Gen Con, and it was also a big hit. I love the theme of this game. It's a deck deconstruction game where you start with this very full deck of cards, and you use tool cards to remove cards from that deck, hoping to be left with a perfect statue, while also trying to impress three critics. Now, this one's way easier to understand what's in front of you, so I'm not even going to try any more here. I will just say this was a big hit with everyone who tried it, and a really brilliant design. Next up, at four plays, we have Shikoku, also a Grand Gamers Guild game. Now, when I heard the theme and the way you win this game, I just had to try it. This is a high player count game. Players are racing up the steps to get to a temple, the top of a temple in Japan. The thing is, you don't want to rush and be the player who gets there first. If you do, you lose and trigger the end of the game. You also don't want to be lazy and get there last. That player loses as well. 
It's actually the players in second and second last that actually win this game. Now, gameplay is a unique form of card drafting using only 33 cards with a lot of back and forth. I thought this was another brilliant design and have enjoyed playing it from four to six players. I'm going to try it today with three. And man, I wish we weren't still in the times of COVID and I could try this with a full player count of eight. Now, we're actually going to be doing a full review of Shikoko on our live show tonight, so I invite you to join us for that. Next, we get down to Aldabas, Doors of Cartagena. Again, from Grand Gamer Guild. Unfortunately, this was the flop of the weekend. This is not an easy-to-learn game. There's a lot going on and a ton of iconography that isn't really clear until you see it working at the table. While our games weren't terrible, we totally missed one rule that ruined the first game, and then our second game had a huge runaway leader problem which made the game feel broken. Now I'm not saying the game is broken, we've only played twice, we haven't given up at this point, and really the first time we played we messed up so bad I don't even know if I want to count that time. So this is one I think that we're going to enjoy more once we get some system mastery over it. But I definitely can't recommend this if you're a one and done gamer. If you're going to buy the game and only play it once, you're probably not going to get much out of Eldabest. Next up, on the opposite side of the scale, we have Gorinto, uh, one of my favorite games of all times. We played twice, both using the Dragon expansion, and both times using something new that's coming soon that, unfortunately, I can't talk about yet. What's with publishers not letting me spread the love? Anyway, embargoes are embargoes. Can't talk about it, but something cool is coming. Now, Gorinto is one of our favorite games of all time. It's actually how I met Mark from Grand Gamers Guild as we did a Kickstarter preview for him and I worked with him on kind of clarifying some of the rules and stuff like that. At this point, I consider myself an unpaid Gorinto ambassador. This tile crafting and placing game is fantastic. And I am looking forward to when I can talk about the new thing because we both, or all four of us have played, really enjoyed it. Next, we have Castles of Mad King Ludwig. That was also at two play. One, which is the base game, which we played extreme, unfortunately. And a second game with the proper rules and the Secrets expansion. Now, this one was inspired by one of our awesome Patreon patrons who uh, went into our Discord to share that she had received her deluxe Kickstarter edition. Which, man, am I jealous. Plus, the fact Sean had never actually tried this game, and it's a game Deanna and I really enjoy. Castles of Mad King Ludwig is just as good as I remember. Though I do have to remind myself to take more time refreshing myself on rules for a game if it's been over two years since I played. That first missed play was totally on me. My fault. We were forgetting to put on money on tiles that weren't built, so did not have enough to uh, buy a lot of stuff. There was a lot of pass and take five bucks. Now we get down to single plays, including a game of Brewcrafters Travel Card Game, which we played at the Walkerville Brewery here in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, as well as picking up some awesome Detroit-style pizza from Slices. Uh, Brewcrafters Travel Card Game is a fantastic multi-use card tableau build that honestly deserves more attention. More people should be checking this game out. It's really well done. You either you, you draft two cards in a turn, you either play one card in your hand to improve your brewery, or you play it as ingredients to brew a beer. Really simple, really well done tableau build. Now, honestly, my goal with this game is to actually play it as many breweries as possible. So the Walkerville Brewery is now checked off that list. And we also tried out Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade from Japanime Games, who I have to thank for sending us a copy to check out. This is a very thematic deck builder uh, game based on the very popular anime, which I also think would appeal to fans of the Netflix series, even though this game came out before the Netflix series existed. This is very much based on the anime. There are some really clever mechanics here to tie in the theme, including moving between planets and having to, 
to hoard fuel. But most interestingly, the way the player characters interact, the characters from the show. So each player is playing one of the main four characters. And despite the fact it's a competitive game, there are ways to use the other characters' abilities if they're with you. And it's really brilliant. It also features some top-notch components. Like, I would have sworn this was a Kickstarter game. It's got a fantastic box insert. It's got miniatures that look great. Dual-layer player boards, way more than I expect from a standard retail game. Now, at this point, we have only played once, but man, did we love it. We played a three-player game with Sean, and I can't wait to play this again. Though, man, I want to try it with all four crew members. If you are a Bebop fan, even after one play, I'm going to say check this game out. You are going to dig this if you are a Cowboy Bebop fan. Next off, we showed off our Geek Up bits for Quacks in a five-player game, also using the Herb Witches expansion, which we've also geeked up. Uh, we played this one, Sean, Tori, and Kat, Deanna, of course, and me, myself. And everyone loved the upgraded components. I think the first three rounds of the game, we talked more. Everyone was like, ooh, they feel so good. Oh, look, they don't get caught in the corners. Oh, they're so nice. Look how good they look on the board. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the components. Now, I got to say, they're not cheap. They really are not. And I totally understand people who have passed on these. We did for a couple of years, but they are so nice. And I am so glad I now have them. And I have to thank my kids as they were a Father's Day gift. So thanks, kids. They're awesome. Um, as for the game of Quacks, it was a great, uh, interesting mix of ingredients and witches. Scores were fairly close. I really liked we had a silver witch that rewarded you points based on the stuff left in your bag at the end of a round. And I thought that was a really neat balancing mechanic. So if you have one of those terrible rounds where all you do is draw a bunch of the, the snap bangs, the, the whites, the garlic, whatever you want to call them, um, then you can score everything that's still in your bag. So I really liked that way. Definitely dig it. Overall, we love the Quacks of Quedlinburg with Herb, which is, I can't say any more good about that. Fantastic game. Now, finally, the last game we played was a two-player game of Super Motherload, Sean and I. This is such a unique deck building game with some dig dug roots that it's rather hard to describe without having it in front. But basically you play cards to dig to get gems, which you use to buy new cards so you can dig more. That's probably a pretty solid summary without getting into the minutiae. Now the interesting bit here is the points don't come from the gems or what you've dug up, but rather how much you upgrade your crew as well as earning achievements while playing, like use three bombs in a turn or dig through six rocks in one turn or dig a tunnel this deep. This was actually a bigger hit than I expected. Like I enjoyed the game. I played it a number of times with Tori and Kat and Deanna and we like it, but we don't love it where Sean seemed to really dig it. And no, I wasn't trying to make a pun there. Sorry. Uh, that was Super Motherload, a bigger hit than I thought. Well, that's all I have for this week. A number of games that played at what may well be the last SeanCon, as Sean may be moving down here to Windsor in the coming months. Now, to hear more about our weekend of gaming, tune in tonight at 9 p.m. EDT at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop, where you can hear Sean's thoughts on all of these games, a detailed review of Shikoku, and more. And if you can't make it live, be sure to check out our podcast when it drops next Tuesday. I do hope to see you on Twitch tonight. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzan. Good day and game on. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What's Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And this week we have two games to talk about. What's the first game we're going to talk about, Anna-Marie? The first game we're going to talk about is Ten Penny Parks, designed by Nate Linhart, art by Vincent Dutrait, 
and published by TW Games. So Thunderworks. Thunderworks. Games. Yes. Ten Penny Park. So this is a game that we've actually been playing um, fairly regularly for the last four, five, six weeks or so. We've had it, and we haven't done a full review of it yet on our podcast, and we're going to. However, we have been playing it a few times in the last week or so, so we thought we would just talk about it just a little bit to give you an idea of what this game's about. But uh, yeah, we are going to do a full review of it, so you'll be able to hear about that in uh, an upcoming episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast, probably in the next two or three weeks, I would wager, at the latest. But let's talk about Ten Penny Park. So what is this game? The theme is there's a basically a big fair that you're putting on like yep. a like you're a building, world's fair you're of. building like a fairground yeah like a crazy crazy old school fairgrounds like roller coasters and merry-go-rounds and like kind of like you know yeah you're basically trying to turn this town into having like the greatest theme parks yeah just all in this one town. but not like a present day theme park no. more of like a mid 1900s kind of yeah. theme park right something back in the 50s or 60s or something like that and what you're doing is you're gonna have your own little player board and uh you are going to have on your player board uh a random assortment of things there's going to be some trees and you're gonna have to put some little tree icons onto your like a uh, uh, meeple tree meeples yeah onto your onto your player board and then you're going to start by drafting out um actions like so you're going to be placing your little meeple characters so there's a carousel we should mention that because it's a really cool little piece yeah okay so the carousel so you've that's... got like a little carousel that goes in the middle of your game board and you basically you're going to be choosing um one action per person um and three and it... actions per turn and there's four turns yeah so you're gonna you can either go um be a banker where you can just get income yep. and you're going to need money because you're going to have to buy the, the, uh, the attractions. Mm -hmm. And so you can be a banker and you can just get $2. You can be an arborist and that allows you to remove two trees from your, from your park, from your current player board because you're you can't trying to put down attractions. Yeah, yeah. You can't build attractions on top of trees. Right. Um, you could be a contractor. Um, and that just allows you to take, they're like little, um, little squares that you tiles that you can put onto your board and they'll give you income in future rounds so they can yeah. like give you they're dollar like value income hot dog carts and things like yeah. this. yeah they're, they're basically what they are is that they're a one square fill um, in where you want to put it because at the core of this game it's kind of it's a polyomino game where you are you're laying down these attractions onto your player board but the 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 twist in this game is that you cannot have any two pieces adjacent that's right that's the big big selling point for me on this game is that it's not clicking them together it's keeping space between yeah them. typically with the with all the polyomino games you're trying to fill up your board and yeah. so you want uh, as many as you can and uh, pack them in as tightly as you can and in this one it is not the case yeah you need to have space between them you can't have any two touching like the corners could touch diagonally but yeah. that's it yeah, and you're you're basically selecting these uh, attractions depending on where they are associated to the carousel, and the carousel is in a different position every turn. Yeah, and then you pay a certain amount of money depending on where that carousel is dictating because because some might have some has, dollars has, off, or yeah, it might cost it, more money. Exactly, the carousel has like uh, plus two dollars all the way to minus two dollars on it. Yeah. So depending on where the carousel spins to, whatever attractions are around it in that particular spot at the particular time, may or not may or not may or may not be <laughs> um, 
discounted yeah or uh more expensive by you know yeah x amount of dollars talking about a spinning carousel so um in this game there are three tracks that you're trying to move up on mm-hmm. and one of those tracks will determine like, whoever is farther along on the track determines whether you're the first player or not and if you're the yeah. first player for the next round you get to move the carousel so you can decide you know um, so if there's a property that you really want to buy and you've got enough money, you're going to orient it so that it lines up with like the minus two on That's that right. property you want to so get. Can, yeah, there's certain ways you can manipulate the carousel to, to your advantage onto which properties you're trying to purchase and so forth. There's there's end of game scoring cards and, and so forth of this game. But again, we don't want to go too much into depth with this one because we are going to do a full review of this in one of the upcoming Meeple Dungeon uh Podcast. podcast episodes <laughs> uh in the next few weeks so we're gonna we're gonna leave 10 penny parks right there it is it's an interesting game you're definitely gonna want to hear about this one it's, it's this game really surprised me um in in how it works but the other game we wanted to talk about is carnegie now we've been playing carnegie um for a few weeks as well and we played a big game of it the other day while we were on vacation and this is a game that we are reviewing on our next episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast. And it is a doozy. This one is a heavy, <laughs> well, for us, it's a heavy euro. Some people might be like, oh, well, that's easy or whatever. But there was a lot going on here in Carnegie. And we are really looking forward to uh, the review of this one because it's kind of one of the heavier games that we've played in a long time, I yeah. would say. This one took us a lot to to figure out. There's a lot going on. But once it, you know, once it clicked, we were... You know, off to the races with this, but yeah, Carnegie is uh, a good one, but we don't want to also <laughs> go too far into Carnegie here, and we're running out of time anyway. Um, but yeah, so you're going to hear about our full review of Carnegie, I would say, by this weekend. I think we're going to record it on Friday night, and we are going to probably post it Saturday, I'm going to think. Something like that. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> and then we'll, uh, yeah, we'll also talk about Ten Penny Parks on a future episode in the next couple of weeks as well. But I think that's it for this week, and we're gonna run, and we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Bye bye. Hello. My name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleNews.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for Watchmen Playing Wednesday. Summer is winding down, families are getting through their last camping weekends, parents are excitedly going back to school shopping, and I'm doing the same thing I do every week, play board game after board game. This week I only have one game I'm going to talk about, but it's pretty special to me. Isle of Sky was designed by Andreas Pelkin and Alexander Fister in 2015 and published by Leco Games. Isle of Sky is a tile drafting and auction game where players are chieftains trying to build up their kingdoms and rule all of Scotland. I've never been to the Isle of Sky, but I have been to Cape Breton Island. From what I've been told, when the Scottish settlers came to Canada and arrived off the coast of Nova Scotia, they asked to be left off on Cape Breton Island because of the jagged cliffs cutting into the ocean reminded them of home. I had a full bus tour of Isle of Sky booked for July of 2020, but world events brought that to a screeching halt. Anyways, back to board games. Isle of Sky looks a lot like Carcassonne at first glance. The tiles depict three different terrain types, glens, bends, and lochs, or plains, mountains, and lakes if you're not speaking Scottish. Tiles can also have several other features, such as sheep, ox, farms, lighthouses, brochs, sailboat, and sailboats, which all may be required for scoring. 
At the start of the game, you'll have your humble abode, a simple castle with roads extending in three directions. Your castle will earn you five gold as income, which you'll use to buy more tiles from your opponents. Each player takes three tiles from a bag and places them in front of their player shields. Behind the player shields, players will place coins, setting the price for each tile that they'll present to the other players. Behind one of those three tiles, however, you'll place a hatchet, which will be cutting it from the round entirely. Once all players have set their prices, the player boards are removed, the axed tiles go back into the bag, and the first player uses any remaining money in their hand to buy one tile from their opponents, or they may pass if they so choose. Should they choose to buy a tile, they give the amount of money to the player that they had indicated for that tile. That player also gets the money that they had used to set the price back into their hand. After every player has had one opportunity to buy tiles, any unbought tiles are taken by their owners, and the money that they had used to set the price for that tile is then put into the bank. Players then place the tiles that they acquired in the round into their kingdom, matching the terrain types. So you have to have, you have to do mountains to mountains and lakes to lakes. You can't just have a plains jutting straight into a mountain. It just doesn't work. After that, scoring occurs. Each game of Isle of Sky will play out differently, with four different scoring objectives that are chosen at the start of the game. The base game comes with 16 scoring tiles, I think, offering a good amount of variability in each game. Each of the expansions also includes more scoring tiles if you need even more variability in your life. These objectives will have you chasing down everything from the number of sheep in your kingdoms to the number of completed mountains to just having or to just having your tiles arranged in columns of three or more. Isle of Sky plays over six rounds. In the first round, only objective A is scored. In the second round, objective B is scored. In the third round, objectives A and C are both scored, and from this point on, for every player who is ahead of you in the score track, you will gain additional income. In the final round of the game, you'll be scoring three objectives at a time, really ramping up the scores for the end game. The player at the end of the game with the most points wins. I love Isle of Sky. It's easily my favorite game by Alexander Pfister, but for me, that's not saying very much, as I'm not really a fan of Maracaibo, Blackout Hong Kong, or Great Western Trail. The flow of Isle of Sky is satisfying. It moves right through the upkeep and scoring phases quickly, so players get back to the interesting points of the game, which is pricing your tiles and buying your opponents overpriced trash. Isle of Sky is easy to teach and play, and offers a lot of variability in the gameplay, giving you replayability by offering more discovery. I've played games where the objectives that came out early were really hard to complete in the first turn, making the scores very close and low at the start of the game, while in other games I've seen one player rocket forward only to be caught at the end after everyone had benefited from the extra income afforded by not being first. It's a great catch-up mechanic, offering more gold to the players behind. It makes you want to be very close in score, but not quite in the front, sort of like a bike race. The player in the lead is the one who needs to work the hardest to maintain their momentum, and if they falter even a little at the end, they'll end up getting passed by more than one player. The economy of Isle of Sky grows substantially as the game goes on. More and more money pours in, into each round. Players go from barely having two pennies rubbed together to pricing both of the tiles at $10 at the last round. It's a great cost-benefit analysis taking place in those moments. You know that a tile is worth three points to someone else, so they really want to buy it. But by giving you $10, they're handing you even more points. It's impossible to know what the right answer is. The dynamics of Isle of Sky are a joy to behold, and after the dust settles and the final sheet bleats, I'm always eager to play it again. If you haven't played Isle of Sky before, I highly suggest you take it, you seek it out. I also own both of the expansions, the Journeyman and the Druids, and I wouldn't necessarily call either one of them required. Actually, I would say that the Journeyman is very much a not recommend. It turns this 
easy, fast, light game into overcomplicated and anal- analysis paralysis prone mess. And that's all I have to talk about this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them over at meeplelandthemoose.com. For gameplay photos and initial impressions, you can follow me on Instagram at meeplelandthemoose or on Twitter at moosepeople. Have a happy Wednesday. Hello there, this is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, once again for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo, that's spider with a Y, if you want to give me a follow for some board game thoughts, board game design challenges, and just a bunch of random thoughts and opinions. Now this week I want to talk about Caper Europe, a really quick-playing two-player game that I recently got in a lot of games of while my brother was in town. Caper Europe is a follow-up game from Keymaster Games and was designed by Une Rubio with art by Josh Emmerich. It plays within about 20 minutes, but don't let the short playtime fool you. Caper Europe is filled with tons of decisions and tactical plays. In this game, players are attempting to pull off heists in various locations in a city in Europe. There are four different cities included in the game, and they all alter a portion of the rules while you are playing there. In each game, you will shuffle the city-specific thieves, gear, and locations into the base set cards that are used in every game, ensuring that there's diversity from game to game. Three locations will be played to the central board, and then four random stolen goods are added to each of the locations. Players will be sending their thieves and equipping those thieves with gear throughout the six rounds of the game in order to try to win the locations, steal the goods, and essentially... Just try to mess with your opponent's plans. In the even-numbered rounds, players will draft thieves and send them to one of the three locations, and in the odd rounds, they will be placing gear onto those thieves, activating abilities, and trying to wrestle control of each location. The locations will all provide various numbers of victory points for whoever controls them at the end of the game, and they'll also provide various abilities as well. So going after the largest victory point locations isn't the only way to win. Some locations will prevent certain cards from being destroyed while there, while others will provide additional victory points at the end of the game for every card of a certain color that you play there. There's a couple of other abilities, but this should give you an idea of what is going on during the game as is. Now, when playing Thieves, many will provide you with money that you will need to play gear cards on subsequent rounds, and they'll also give you unique abilities while they're at that location. Many of the Thieves will give you victory points for specific combinations of cards that you play there, or for other Thieves that you have there. Each location can hold up to three Thieves from each player, and you need to be clever in choosing who to send where, trying to create combos to either control the location or score extra victory points at the end of the game. You each pass hands of cards back and forth during these drafting rounds, so you never know what is going to be available to you as you try to create that perfect team. You'll also only be able to add a total of six thieves to the locations during the entire game, so you'll never be able to fill up all of the locations. Do you ignore one altogether? handing your opponent a sure victory, but giving you a better chance to potentially win one or two of the others? Or do you fight tooth and nail for every spot that your opponent chooses? Each thief is valuable in their own right, but how do you craft the best team of scoundrels while at the same time denying your opponent what they're looking for? 
Also, because thieves come with between zero to three coins on them, and money is very valuable for the gear rounds, how much emphasis do you put on just collecting a lot of cash? So many juicy decisions in a really small amount of time. Then, once you've played the thieves, comes the next part of the game. Equipping those thieves with delightful gear to further control things and mess up your opponent. You'll be able to add five gear each round, and they all cost money. Money that is in very short supply, as you will soon find out. Some of the gear will give you control of locations, based on how many of a certain color card that you've played there. Some steal goods from their locations, and some will provide you with more money, while others will actually destroy gear that your opponent has previously played at this location. A well-played blowtorch can devastate the other team's plans, but it may not give you an overall advantage in the end. You can also discard a gear card from the game instead of playing it in order to gain a coin for future plays. This is a good way to get rid of something that your opponent may really want, but that you have absolutely no use for. Play then alternates back to playing additional thieves and gear in subsequent rounds until the end of round 6 when you total up all the points that you've earned in the game. The stolen goods that you've collected are worth various points for sets that you gather, and various cards that you've played will also provide ways to score. It's very easy to add up, and Keymaster did provide a small score sheet to track everything. Whoever scores the most points is the best master thief in the game, but then you immediately want to play it again because it's so quick, and you want to either avenge your loss or prove your cunning again and again. The game features incredible artwork by Josh Emmerich, especially the unique thieves that are in the game. They ooze with character and humor. And although some of the thieves are characters that you may assume would be preparing for a heist, the Smuggler, Cleaner, or Dawn, for example, many are just hilarious to see in this game, like the Dame, the Saint, and the Chef. And you have to wonder about what their personal stories were and how they got involved in this in the first place. My only complaint about the game is that you do see every thief and gear in each game, but you don't know exactly when they'll appear. I assume that this was a design decision to ensure that you have somewhat perfect information once the random locations are set up, but I would have loved a little bit more variety. Now, however, this is one of the best two-player-only games that I have ever played, and have never had a bad experience playing it. Some of the cities are more fun than others to play, but they each have their own twist, and there isn't one that I would ever turn down playing. Now, because of its super quick playtime, you can get in several games back-to-back -back in an evening. The first time we played this, my brother and I played five games in a row and had a blast each and every single time. Keymaster knocked, out, knocked this one out of the park in terms of production, with top-notch components and a gorgeous insert that fits everything perfectly. Other companies really need to take note of this, as a perfect insert can be made with a little bit of effort and add so much value to, to the game, making it quick to set up and clean up during a game night. If you're looking for a super fun, super quick game with a ton of decisions and replayability, snag yourself a copy of Caper Europe if you're able to. It's a great little game to play while waiting for that person who is always late to game night. And who knows, when they arrive and see how much fun you're having playing it, they might actually want to show up on time or early in the future so that they too have a chance to play Caper Europe. You never know, it could happen. Thanks for listening to my thoughts this week. Once again, I am Chris Morris. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo if you'd like to give me a follow for some more insights and my gaming preferences. Happy gaming, everyone, and may all your dice rolls be critical successes.
Hey there, everybody. This is Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And it is time to see what the Bridge City Board Gamers community have been playing. So, what you been playing, everybody? Let's get to the top of this list and see what's going on here. Here we go. Eli played Portal, unco uncooperative game. Yeah. Uh, Azul and Elysium with Curtis and Brent. Um, nice. Um, uh, I've, not, I've never heard of uh, co uh, Portal co Uncooperative, so that's awesome. Uh, Azul. I've, uh, somebody was talking about Azul just recently, how, how much they love that puzzle game. And they were so surprised. Rob, I think Rob was talking about that. And they were so surprised how engaging it was. Um, and Elysium, that's one I've always... That's on my list. I don't know why I've never played that one. I've, a lot of people talk about it. So there, there you go. There you go, eh? Uh, Hands. Uh, played twice as clever. Dice Miner. Clever Cubed. Archaeology. Tussie Mussy. Project L. Terraforming Mars, of course. Uh, Gingerbread House. Space Station Phoenix. Sorcerer City. And Smoothies. Um, I'd say that's in alphabetical order, but no, it's not. Uh, it's in a big order, and that's, man, that's a lot of good game in there. I see some uh, short games. I see some long, in-depth games. Uh, what jumps out to me, though, is Gingerbread House. That's a couple times I've seen that on the list, and uh, that's, uh, as I said before, that's always on, uh, it's on my target list. And uh, But, yes, uh, um some fantastic Tessie Mussy, if and no one knows, it's uh, uh, Elizabeth Hargraves who designed Wingspan, came up with a, one of those eighteen card card games, and uh, I had a uh, I had the chance to um, play the preview copy, and it was fantastic. It's great, uh, a lot of really cool decisions in it. So yeah, right on. Ash, Micro Macro. Seven Wonders and Leaders expansion. And uh, yeah, Micro Macro, I've never played that one. And Seven Wonders, it's a standard. It's an absolute standard. And uh, probably the, the, the card drafting game that brought that uh, uh, mechanism to the, to the forefront for a lot of stuff. Now it's just, I think that that mechanism of, of card drafting is just one of those kind of spices that you find in all the games now with a, with a whole bunch of other stuff. So right on. Lane, Tapestry and Gloomhaven. Two, uh, yeah, two great games. Gloomhaven, I mean, if you haven't played Gloomhaven and you like that fantasy dungeon diver, you, you got to try this. And you don't need to jump into the big box because Jaws of the Lion was the uh, kind of the entry version that was developed by Cephalofare Games uh, and released in Target and at a way cheaper price than the, than the steamer trunk version of the large Gloomhaven. But yeah, and Tapestry, uh, Stonemaier Games, absolute, uh, absolute uh, uh, you know, uh, standard when it comes to a lot of these hybrid Euro games. And Tapestry is a sieve building game, but it's a Euro track game with a sieve building theme so don't get uh, don't get kind of you know throttled by the fact that you're not you know doing your sim city kind of thing so uh drake taught a friend munchkin and carcassonne on money then ended with some dinosaur island uh you know uh i haven't played 
uh, dinosaur island ever. So I can't really weigh in on that one at all. Brian, role player and welcome to. Yeah, nice. Uh, role player is a, uh, is a standard on my shelf. And uh, let's keep moving on. Here we go. We got a big list. Um, Joel played some Fantasy Realms, Point Salad, Flip Ships, Draftosaurus, Gizmos, and Champions of Midgard. Fantasy Realms, we just talked about that. That's, uh, that's basically you have a hand of cards that you're trying to bring cards in and bring cards out so that they synergistically match up for great big sport, uh, uh, scoring hands. And uh, there's, it's such a great... Uh, game mechanism or great great game engine that it has spawned some versions. I have the Star Trek Next Generation version of this Fantasy Realms engine. And the original one is, you know, like a fantasy dungeon diver kind of, you know, high fantasy with fighters and clerics and that whole thing. So right on. Uh, Flip Ships is oh, it's basically, how good it, it's uh, tiddlywinks. Now I got to show my age. Um, basically it's pogs that you're flicking with uh, like a crokinole flick and uh, as as the space invaders card uh, uh, kind of column starts coming towards you and uh, it's anxiety inducing and it's fun so there you go um brad as i mentioned before wingspan um, which is a bird uh, it's an excellent engine builder hidden in this bird sanctuary that you're building and uh, I've always had fun. The solo play on this is great too. Juicy Fruits, I've not played it. I heard a lot of people like it a lot. And Cooper Island, um, this is uh, Capstone Games. Uh, I've, I've had my eye on this. I've not played it. But it's a, uh, a lot of people say it's a pretty good deep Euro. So I'm going to always agree with that. Garth, a friend introduced me to Citadels this week. Love the interaction and constant ten tense uncertainty. I've heard that Citadels can be a little edgy. So, yeah, I'm glad you like it. Um, Marianne, I'm going to have to click this picture to come in close to see it. Uh, it is a very cool uh, wooden donut on a kind of like donut grid um, with... Uh, spheres that occupy kind of um, socketed into the center part of these donuts and it looks it looks like a kind of cool area control I've never heard of this and I believe it's uh, from the Asian gaming market in origin according to the box here um, and it looks like a very cool abstract thing uh, and I'm not even going to guess at it at all but I'm going to break this down because I know a lot of uh, people who dig the abstract might uh, might be into this. Very good find, Marianne. Three is what it's called. Uh, Tim Warhammer Underworlds. I, you know what? I got it. We've we gotta get in. We gotta have more. I'm gonna have to make a uh, 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 Wrath of Khan in Saskatoon for some uh, for some of the Bridge City board gamers people here. So. I can get some of these games into play. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm just going to quickly touch on uh, one fast game that I played, uh, Gamer's Garage, this week. And we were on a br August break, apparently. <laughs> um, that's good, though. We're, we're getting back into it this week. But um, I had the pleasure 
to play uh, Randy Flynn's, uh, published by AEG and Flat Out Games, Cascadia. It was, it was my favorite game when we did, you know, favorite games of that year. My, my, by far my favorite game. And still, I have so much fun with this game. If you've never played it, um, it's a, it's a double-layered abstract pattern game where you're trying to pattern connect the different regions to, and like, it's not an area control, but it's sort of like who has the biggest area gets the most points, right? So it's that kind of race. And uh, so it's it's the geography, the different regions of connected, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, segments, and on top of that, the the animals that are um, uh, part of the uh, you know that inhabit these regions, and those have patterns that will generate points or rules of patterns that will generate points. And uh, yeah, in a, in a sh- man, it feels like such a short amount of time. Those those uh, those tiles run out fast, and uh, uh, yeah, my brain grokes this because it's not really a competitive game in regards to you know a lot of attack, you know, take that kind of thing. But there are there's there's a draft, a tile and animal pairing draft that you, that rule can be broken if you have you know, the proper resource to allow that. But um, there's also that hate drafting part can come into here, right? Uh, But you're so focused on your own thing that sometimes it's it's just not worth it. You just stay dialed into the strategy that you're developing and you try to be as efficient as you can with it. So just love Cascadia to bits, absolutely. Um, can't, you know, I can't gush any more about this game. Uh, and of course the art, uh, Beth Sobel, fantastic. I mean, uh, Wingspan, I believe, uh, a previous, uh, content creator talked about how Beth Sobel's art is, um, uh, you know, top notch. Absolutely. So, well, that being said, again, I've got to start editing that one out. (laughs) Um, uh, I'd like to thank you for listening to what we have to say about what we've been playing recently. And hopefully we've motivated you to uh, either take that big step and get those games that we've been talking about. Or, um, you know, maybe we've said enough things that you're like, I, I don't like, your, uh, you know, worker placement. So I'm not going to get that game. <laughs> yes, John, I'm listening. Um, so yes, thank you so much for listening and thank you always to the content creators who contribute every week to make this show happen. This special episode, it's so special, um, happen and, uh, yay, thank you. And, uh, can't finish the episode without saying, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh? (laughs) 